Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up in this episode, we meet the director of the UK's Central Laser Facility and ask him about plans to build an X-ray free electron laser in the UK. But first, I meet a laser physicist who works with some of the world's best atomic clocks. The first atomic clocks were developed in the 1950s, and since then, scientists and engineers have created ever more accurate and robust devices. These have found a wide range of scientific and technological applications, such as providing the timing needed to run global navigation systems such as GPS, and putting Einstein's general theory of relativity to the test. Much of this development has been done at the United States National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST. And I'm very pleased to be joined down the line from Boulder, Colorado, by a physicist who works at NIST on atomic clocks. Tara Forche, welcome to the podcast. Hamish, thank you so much for having me here. And Tara, can you start off by giving us a brief description of how an atomic clock works? Yes, um... I'd be happy to, but just just to begin, I just want to mention that um, the work on atomic clocks, development of atomic clocks, and actually the time that's created from atomic clocks is a very much a global endeavor. So um, NIST is not the only institute that par- participates um, in in basically the the definition of time. Uh, time is determined actually democratically and globally by national metrology institutes around the world, including the NPL in Teddington, near London. Uh, how atomic clocks work is kind of the following. So I, I, I don't want to start with the atoms themselves because I think they're a little bit confusing. Um, what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk about um, timekeepers that people are more familiar with. So um, atoms are used to define time much in the same way that os- quartz oscillators are used to tell time you know, in, in watches or phones or on computers. So quartz crystals define time by exciting a mechanical resonance in the quartz material. And many people have actually experienced or played with mechanical resonances um, using wine glasses made of crystal. So what people often do is they'll wet their finger and they'll run the tip of their finger around the rim of the, of the wine glass. And in doing, doing so, what they do is they add mechanical energy, right, in the form of the movement of their finger. And what that does is it excites an auditory tone, right, or a, a, almost like a musical note in the wine glass that has a frequency of about a thousand hertz or a thousand periods or cycles of the mechanical vibration of the glass per second. If we go back to quartz now, this mechanical resonance in quartz is very similar to that of the wine glass, except that you don't excite the mechanical vibration using mechanical energy, you use an electronic signal. And the resonance frequency or the mechanical the vibration in quartz is much, much higher than it is for the wine glass. It's about 50,000 times higher. But what we do in quartz is if you know the time interval of the period of the vibration, one second can be basically accumulated or defined um, over a certain number of periods of that mechanical resonance. So if we go back to the atoms, Time in atoms is actually defined in a very similar fashion. So in crystals, the resonances that we excite right in the wine glass or in quartz 
are determined by the forces internal to the crystal itself. And they determine the frequency of the mechanical resonances. So forces external to the crystal are what excite the resonance. So if we, you know, we wrung our finger around the rim of the glass that adds mechanical energy, or if we add electrical energy to quartz, we can excite those resonances and make them ring. And we can basically count those resonances, or we can define a second as a certain number of periods of that resonance. In atoms, the physical forces internal to the atom actually govern the behavior of the electrons and nucleons, which create also resonances with the, within the atoms. And these resonances can be excited very similarly to the excitations that we see in the wine glass, but the, the resonances in atoms are actually excited by electromagnetic fields or light. Um, so in the atom that we currently use to define the second internationally, the atomic resonance has a frequency that's about 100 million times higher than the tone used in the wine glass. When the frequency of a resonance is higher, the period is shorter. So you need more periods to be able to elapse, to um, accumulate to a second. So the current definition um, of the second internationally is defined by the uh, specific isotope of cesium. And the second actually is 9 billion 192,631,770 periods of oscillation of the cesium atom. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that's a lot, a lot of oscillations. So, so, is, so the idea is that you're you you're you're shining light on an atom, and and you're you're causing it, you're causing the atom to oscillate and give off light, and it's the the vibration or or the the oscillation of that light that the atom gives off that you use as your clock. Is is that basically how it works? That's exactly how it works. Yeah. So you just think of it as you need to excite. You need to excite some vibrate some in the atom. It's a resonance, and then what you do is you define the second as a number of periods of that resonance. And and so with the actually in the cesium clock, which is our current definition of the second, it's um it's a microwave frequency. So it's not actually light. It is light. I mean it it's it's not optical light, but it's electromagnetic radiation. In the clocks that we used in the our experiments, we were using optical atomic clocks. So these operated basically. Uh, wavelengths that we can see. And 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 Tara, you mentioned um, cesium is is the standard um, at the moment for that defines the second. Um, but you you also mentioned that in 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 your research you look at other atoms. I think that this latest um, research that we're going to be talking about shortly, you look at ytterbium and um, aluminium atoms. What, why do you use? Um, a range of different atoms to make atomic clocks. Are you are, are you sort of searching for the best atom, or or do, do these different clocks have different properties that that you, that we can find useful? So that's a very good question. So um, as as I mentioned previously, cesium is a current definition of the second. So um, you know it was that one particular atom that was decided upon to be able to define the second based on microwave frequencies. So the cesium atom operates at nine gigahertz. So that's nine billion cycles per second. Um, for like these next generation optical atomic clocks, which operate 
at much higher frequency, so about 50,000 times higher in frequency, um, what we're doing is we're kind of searching for the right clock. So the reason that people have started to develop optical atomic clocks is that there's a rule of thumb where basically the more, if you have more cycles per second, um, you can achieve better resolution in timing or in the measurement of frequency. Um, and you can kind of think about that. Like if you have errors in terms of counting, the more things that you have to count, the less, generally speaking, fractionally, the less errors you'll have in the measurement. Um, and so that's why optical atomic clocks are so so interesting as new candidates for redefinition of the second. But the problem is, is you know, the people have been have been working on these clocks maybe for 20 or 30 years. And the question is, which is going to be the best one? So um, the aluminum clock and the ytterbium clock are actually very different. So the aluminum clock is actually based on an ion. So this is an atom where you've removed one electron. So it's a negatively charged you know, system. And in the aluminum clock, you have one ion. So one ion is actually what helps to create the timing for this atomic system. For the ytterbium clock, um, these are just neutral atoms. So they're, they're, there's no charge on them. Um, and actually you'll have many, many of them, something like 10,000 atoms in a cloud help to define the resonance of the clock. Um, so they're very, very different systems and they have different benefits to one another. Um, and these are not the only atomic optical atomic clocks that exist. So um, metrology labs from around the world are developing other types of clocks based on ions and also neutral atoms. And it's kind of a race to see who can, which clocks have better accuracy. Um, and in the end, when the second, the, we, we have a hope that the second will be redefined in the next decade or so to the optical atomic clocks because they have, you know, maybe a hundred times better accuracy than the current microwave um, atomic clock. Um, but we're not even sure if one is going to choose one specific species of clock um, because these clocks are so hard to develop and so much work has gone into them. It's possible that we will use actually many different types of species of clock to define the second. It will just be that the second will be defined by a different number of periods um, of oscillation in those different atoms. And is another reason for, for looking at different species of atoms and different designs of clocks that that atomic clocks are, are used in for practical reasons in in sort of different environments um, you know for example um, in in space for example uh, you, you've got atomic clocks and and by looking at trying trying out lots of different systems you might find a system that is perfect for, for use, I don't know, in, in, in space. You might find another system that's perfect for use in a navigation system in an airplane. Um, is that why it's worth trying out all these different atoms? Well, not, not too much. I mean, the, the big difference between different systems oftentimes is the lasers that they use. So actually, um, both microwave clocks and optical atomic clocks use a lot of lasers. And and oftentimes, if you want to have uh, like a very practical, robust system that let's say you would send to space, um, what you'd want to use is simple laser systems. So in some senses, you're right. So, you know, if you're going to have a compact system, you know, that you can that you can make very robust and send to space or drive around in a car, you're going to want to have very good, easy to use lasers with that system. And so, yes, there, there are the people that are trying to develop kind of portable clocks and they're really working on robustness and engineering of those clocks 
But at the same time, some people are trying to work on making the absolute best clocks. And in that case, the lasers aren't so much as important as making the accuracies um, and the noise as good as possible. So the, you want to make the resolution as, as high as possible. So actually, you're right. <laughs> but one of the other reasons we, um, we develop different clocks is that we need to be able to measure clocks against one another. So you have to imagine it's like you're trying to shoot at a target. But it's hard to know that you've hit the center of a target without a reference. And so you, you, you need to do a measurement of one clock versus another clock to be able to see how close you are to hitting the target. And so in the measurements we did in our research, we were trying to look at the relative frequencies between two clocks to, to be able to see how, how closely we expect them to kind of match. And, and why is it important um, to, to make these comparisons? Uh, is it because ultimately, or I suppose even today, we've got these clocks all over the world and, and you'd like to, uh, to be able to hook them up and, and see how they run? And um, uh, is that why, why you want to make comparisons? So one of the, the reasons it's important to compare clocks is actually, two I think, two big reasons for them. It's for some of the applications of clocks beyond timing, and also um, to be able to show that uh, we can redefine the second based on optical atomic clocks. So um, if, I, if I talk about it from the perspective of redefining the second, there are a number of things that we need to demonstrate as a com community. So this is actually a worldwide endeavor. We have to, even if the, you know, what we're hoping is you want to get better resolution in time. So you want your definition of the second to be better than the future, the, than the current definition to make sure that it has some longevity to it. Um, so one thing is we have to show that, you know, the clocks that we're going to use for, redef for redefining the second actually operate at a level that's significantly better than the old clocks. And, and the problem with the old clocks is that they have a specific limit in terms of how well they can measure things. So we can't measure our new clocks against the old clock or the current definition of the second because it will limit the measurement. So we need to measure different optical clocks against each other, which allows us to be able to um, you know, search for these resolutions that are 100 times better than the current definition of the second. But the other thing that we need to do is we need to show that they're robust. So we have to do measurements over and over and over again uh, because it's actually quite a lot of work to define the second. You need many, many people from around the world who are doing these measurements on a regular basis to be able to support the international definition of time. Um, so, you know, if, if, if the clocks aren't good enough and you end up with one or two labs who are trying to do the work, those people will burn out. But we need that, we need that definition of the second for things like global navigation. So it's actually a, it's an important role that these national metrology labs um, serve. But the other thing is that it's not even that, you know, they have to work well, that the, that the current definition is, is consistent with the old definition, but better. But the other thing that we need to make sure is that if, you know, if I build a clock or somebody builds a clock in Boulder and someone builds a clock in Tokyo and someone builds a clock in Teddington, that all of those clocks actually have exactly the same frequency or they create the exact same timing. So people are really working hard on not just uh, on doing comparisons between atomic clocks to try to meet the metrics necessary to satisfy, you know, uh, the needs of the global community to, to be able to create robust optical atomic time. 
And in this latest work that you've done with your, your colleagues at NIST, you've used a, a technique called differential spectroscopy to compare uh, two different clocks. One, I think, that was made from ytterbium and the other from aluminium. Can, can you describe the technique in simple terms? I will try. <laughs> I'd say it actually, <laughs> the, technique is, the technique is relatively, is actually relatively complicated. Um, but, you know, maybe I'll start by by saying this, is that the technique that we use is basically a different way of measuring atomic clocks against one another. So we're comparing clocks, but we're comparing them in a different way. And the reason that this method is, you know, is, 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 makes like a significant advancement is that it reduces the technical noise in the measurement, which allows us to achieve better res resolutions at shorter times. So I'm going to, I'm going to take a shot at trying to explain this. Um, but in a typical measurement of two atomic clocks, what happens is the clocks kind of run independently. So they're in different labs. They don't really know anything about one another. Um, and what we do is we essentially kind of count the number of cycles per second. So we're trying to evaluate the, the frequencies of those atomic clocks, and we want to know how, you know, how different they are, right? We're trying to look at the relative frequency between these two atomic resonances. In this work, what's different is that we actually run the clock synchronously. So we, we, it's like we kind of start the oscillations of these clocks at the same time, and we're still counting the number of cycles per second for the resonances, but we're measuring something else. Um, so in a resonance, you have peaks and valleys for that oscillation. And what we're also doing is tracking the relative um, time or, or phase difference between the peaks and valleys of those atomic clocks. And by looking at that additional bit of information, we're able to extract more information, right? More, um, more resolution in the measurement. So I'd say that that's the, the main difference. Um, but the reason that it ends up being important is that in atomic clocks and, and in many of the applications, um, what we need to do is we need to measure for a long time. So the longer the measure you measure the atomic clocks, the better you can um, the better you can define the frequency or the more precisely you can define timing for those systems. And some of these measurements can be very, very long. Um, and in, in measurements, in applications beyond timing, you generally need two clocks. You can't just get away with one. For timing, you can get away with having a single clock because that single clock outputs the definition of time for you. Um, but in many of the kind of next generation applications, we need two clocks. And sometimes actually we need clocks that are of different species. Um, and usually what you're doing is you want to hit a certain resolution to be able to use atomic clocks as sensors you know, for measurement of things like the Earth's gravitational field at a level that is better than our best current measurement techniques. And so we have to hit a certain resolution to actually gain an advantage over previous measurement techniques. And some of those measurement times are excessively long, thousands of years, many, many months. And by reducing, uh, by increasing the measurement resolution um, using this technique, uh, we get a factor of 100 reduction in the amount of time it takes to do some of these measurements. And what that does is it helps to improve the feasibility of some of these next generation measurements with optical atomic clocks. Um, and also, if you if you have clocks that don't have to run as long, they don't have to be as robust. So it's kind of win-win. So you don't have to measure as long. And because you don't have to measure as long, the engineering, the amount of 
labor that's required to do the measurements is significantly shorter. And, and Tara, you mentioned uh, applications that, you know, measuring Earth's um, gravitational field. Uh, am I right in thinking in, in those experiments, you've got, you've got two different clocks in two different places, and, and you look at the sort of slight differences in, in how fast they run, and that can be related to Einstein's general theory of relativity, and that can tell you something about, uh, about gravity and, uh, and, and beyond. That is exactly the perfect explanation for how that works. That is exactly how that works, yes. So yeah, you have to have two different clocks. They can either be the same species of clock or different clock, but it's the idea that in Earth's gravity, right, if the gravity, the, the, the gravitational field is different, the clocks run at different speeds due to uh, the gravitational redshift or Einstein's theory of general relativity. So yes. And and the the experiments where, where you're using two species of 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 atom in you know in, in two different clocks is is that is that related to you know sort of precision experiments for particle physics for example where you I don't know you you come up with a new bit of physics beyond the standard model and you say that it would apply to to two different atoms in in slightly different ways and then you use your atomic clocks to to look for those differences. And is, is that, I mean, is that a possibility for, for such a, a comparison experiment in the future? Yeah, that, I mean, people have actually been doing measurements like that for the past two decades or so. And, you know, like a, a little bit of more detail behind it is that, you know, we talk about these resonances in atoms and just like the resonances in quartz or in a wine glass, it, it's determined by the underlying forces internal to the atoms and between the particles that make up the atoms. And so the resonances in different atomic clocks are defined by our physical laws, but they're also defined by our physical constants. Um, and, and physical constants are actually very interesting, right? They're, they're unique in some senses to our universe. So we have things like the speed of light that determine how fast light travels in vacuum. We have things like the gravitational constant, which basically tells us how strong something like the gra gravitational um, force is compared to the electromagnetic force, um, which, you know, whose strength is determined by the charge of the electron. But then we also have uh, the fine structure constant. And the fine structure constant tells us basically how strong the interaction is between electrons and electromagnetic fields. Um, and because the different species of atoms have different sensitivities to the fields and they have different sensitivities to these um, physical constants, we can do tests um, of these physical laws, right? So uh, one test that people have done is, you know, it's kind of nice, you know, this earth is a traveling platform. So the earth moves around the sun and the, you know, the, the, the gravitational potential between the sun and the earth changes slightly due to changes in the orbit. And so what we can do is we can do, you know, periodic tests of looking at this, the differences in the resonant frequencies between the two, two atomic clocks. And, you know, if, if we're, if we're using them as clocks, what we want is we never want those resonant frequencies to change, right? They're supposed to be constant, right? But if our physical laws are different than we think they are, you know, as we move through space, we might see that the resonant frequencies change slightly for one clock relative to another. And we can, you know, attribute that to basically to, to 
slight differences in physics beyond what we beyond our standard model of physics that we have today. So yeah, we do we have been doing experiments like that. Um, so people have tested things like is the is the speed of flight constant? Is the um, fine structure constant constant? You know, do do we see differences as we orbit the sun? So far, we haven't seen anything. But the thing is that as these the resolutions of these clocks become higher and higher, what we can do is we can probe our physical laws to uh, you know higher and higher degree. So is that something that you can do with your your setup at NIST, um, or uh, at NIST are you fo focusing on on developing better atomic clocks and then allowing physicists at uh, university labs to um, to do the sorts of experiments that you've just described? No, yeah. Also, well, I mean, yeah. But our, our our primary focus, of course, is you know defining time and producing better and more robust clocks. But I'm, it's kind of like a nice. Um, a nice side project, right, or benefit of these clocks is that we have these exquisite probes of our physical laws and nature. And so in addition to these, you know, when we do these characterizations of clocks, you know, to help support the international community, we, we do get to have these additional measurements um, on the side to help support fundamental physics. So it's actually, it makes it very fun because you're doing something that's practical and also, you know, um, you're also getting to study nature. So it's actually a beautiful job. Oh, that's great, Tara. Thanks. Thanks so much for, for describing that uh, for us. X-ray free electron lasers, or XFELs, are major scientific facilities that produce highly coherent X-ray pulses for use in a wide range of research, including physics, chemistry, and biology. A campaign is underway to build an XFEL in the UK, and earlier this week, a meeting was held at the Royal Society in London to launch the conceptual design and options analysis phase of the project. Physics World's Michael Banks was there, and he caught up with John Collier, who is director of the UK's Central Laser Facility, and they had a chat about UK XFEL. Well, hi, John. Thanks for joining us today, hi, Physics World. And uh, we're up today at the Royal Society to talk about the UK's um, a, is it kind of conceptual, launching a conceptual design report for the UK. We're we're, a project is launching the conceptual design and uh, options analysis uh, phase of a project, a potential project to establish a free electron laser, X-ray free electron laser um, in the UK, or if not in the UK, then maybe to examine the potential of um, investing in, in um, other machines elsewhere in the world. And could you just briefly describe kind of what an X-ray free electron laser is? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is a bit what it says on the tin, really. It's, a, it's an X-ray source that is a laser. So we're all, many of us, are used to normal lasers, visible lasers, laser pointers. And uh, these conventionally will run from as far in infrared up into just outside the visible. What is happening with a, um, an XFEL is that you're getting exactly those same laser properties of spatial coherence, temporal coherence, and so forth, but now into the um, X-ray part of the, the spectrum. 
And of course, there are kind of a number of exfil facilities around the world. Um, what, what, why does the UK kind of want to build one kind of itself and have one UK based? <laughs> well, there are, you say there are a number, actually a small number around the world. There's probably uh, six, maybe seven um, uh, exfils in existence. Uh, the UK does have access, it's a member of the European uh, uh, exfil in, based in Hamburg. Um, it accounts for about 7% of uh, time uh, in that uh, on that machine uh, which has grown actually from two percent just a few years ago so the the, the rise has been uh, of use of that has been quite significant why does it want to build why are we proposing that um, that, that we build uh, one in the UK um, the idea is to try to uh, build something which is which is unique is, is different it's maybe you might want to call it a next generation uh, Xfel they take a very long time to build, typically uh, 10 years, and of course people are realising as they're using them all of the extra things that would be would be great to have as part of, uh, of an, a next generation machine. So we've gone through a process that's been uh, supported by STFC and UK Research and Innovation over the last few years to look at a science case initially for what uh, we, we could do, what's, what would ideally uh, what would be the scientific rationale for a new machine um, and that has now led into this next phase this constable concept design phase how can we translate uh, this, the science needs into a machine design is it feasible is it affordable mm -hmm. um, could it be done more economically by investing elsewhere for example so that's that's really where we where we're at and I guess you kind of, you know, given that there are already like a few exfils around the world, um, are you kind of looking kind of unique capabilities that are yeah. not in existing facilities that may have, may occur in the UK one? Yes. So, I mean, there, there's obviously, given the small number of uh, fells or exfels in the world, there's obviously a capacity argument uh, that could be applied. But really, the the, the raison d'etre for it would be unique capabilities, being able to do things that can't be done at the moment or would be very difficult to be done uh, at the moment. So, you know, having, for example, full temporal coherence, so being able to control the, the, the temporal structure of, uh, of the expel pulse uh, rather than rely on, on what's called sassy, but basically noise for the generation of that pulse. That would be one of the first things. They, we'd want to get right, making sure that we've got continuous loading of a machine so that the, the X-ray pulses come on a very regular uh, spacing. The other, the ability to have maybe um, X-ray pump and X-ray probe experiments. So you're deriving two X-ray pulses with different characteristics from the same uh, machine, but also then, you know, the, the, uh, trying to, to, to consider also the capacity issues uh, that would inevitably come. And you, the challenge here is, of course, we're, we're trying to think of, or trying to anticipate what the situation will be in a decade's time, at least a decade's time, maybe longer. This is not, this is a machine that would be for the 2030s, 2040s, maybe 2050s. Um, and so that's actually the challenge. It's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's trying to marry up the technology, today's technology, what technology needs to be uh, developed with the anticipated science uh, of tomorrow, such that in, you know, if it were constructed in a decade uh, or so's time, it is state of the art, it is very relevant, it's very current, even in a decade's time. 
And one of the big things these days with the construction of kind of new facilities is kind of looking at kind of green credentials as well in terms of, you know, especially with accelerators and yes. things like that. Is that something that's going to be considered in the it's, conceptual it's, design it, report? It absolutely uh, will be. Um, any major investment now, even actually s small scale investments that, that we are asking to be made uh, by the government, uh, green issues, net zero is front and centre. So, you know, it's... It, 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 it's part of the consideration for what we're doing and how we would go about building uh, such a machine, what, how we could use any of energy efficient components, how we can make the buildings that it goes in. This thing is a large thing, it's maybe a kilometre, kilometre and a half long. So that's not insignificant in terms of uh, the potentially environmental impact there. So yes, of course, all of these things um, will be part of the consideration of any, any case going forwards and any design that we develop now. And when will when do you expect the conceptual design report to be kind of complete? Is that around roughly a couple of years' time? Yeah, it's a three-year project. Right. Uh, we're launching it today in, in January 2023, but it formally started October the 1st, uh, 2022. So we've already been running for a couple of months. So yeah, in, uh, we'll deliver this report in about 36 months' uh, time. Well, it's great. Thanks for joining us, John. Not at all. Thank you. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for the podcast. Thanks to Tara Forche, John Collier, and Michael Banks for joining me this week. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week. But in the meantime, do listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester speaks to two people who are involved with the European Space Agency's Para-Astronaut Feasibility Project. This looks at how human spaceflight can be made more accessible. The episode is called Making Spaceflight Accessible to People with Physical Disabilities, and you can find it on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.